how do you educate people to see the difference between those two? One is like immediate gratification, the sugar rush of like, I did good and look at me versus like, holy shit, like this is something that's going to last, you know, and, and it's harder and it feels shitty sometimes. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I sit down for meaningful conversations with people who aim to build fewer walls, longer bridges, and bigger tables with their lives and work. My guests want to leave the planet better than they found it. I truly hope today's conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. 646-328-6414. Write that number down and let's take this relationship to the next level. Here's the deal. Social media is too much. So frustrating, so full, so busy, and we miss most of what people are trying to say and do on social media because of bullshit algorithms and such. It's too much. So let's text. We can talk about whatever you want. I'll be able to text you when new podcast episodes come out. And you'll be the first to hear updates on the book I'm writing, or as my agent would love to point out, the book I'm trying to write, the nonprofit we're starting, and so much more. Again, that number is 646-328-6414. Text me, you'll get one or two automated messages, and then once you're in the system, it'll be all me from there on out. And if you're listening to this while driving and can't jot that number down, please don't die, first of all. Go to letsgiveadam.fm when you get to your final destination. Check out the show notes. The number's in there. Or you can go to the link in our Instagram bio and find it there. Friends, I hope to hear from you soon. Let's text. Okay, my friends. My guest today is the incredible Anne Lee. For the past few years, she has served as the CEO of CORE, Sean Penn's disaster relief charity. CORE stands for Community Organized Relief Effort. Among the great things she has done while in this role as CEO, she has led high-level partnerships with organizations like the World Bank, the United Nations, the Sean Parker Foundation, Supreme Committee of Qatar, the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, Salesforce, World Central Kitchen, and many others. Before she joined CORE, she was the lead on urban humanitarian response and the private sector liaison for the Secretary General's World Humanitarian Summit at the UN's Organization for Coordination and Humanitarian Affairs. I need a nap after that. I definitely need a smoke break after rattling off just a couple of the incredible things that Anne has accomplished. She has also received the Society for International Development's prestigious Truman Award in 2009. I could go on and on and on. Bottom line, Ann Lee is a certified badass. During our chat, we spend a good chunk of time talking about her incredible story, how she began working with Sean Penn, and how CORE has done incredible work to provide testing to millions during this global pandemic. Ann is awesome, and I'm so grateful that I got to spend some time with her and that I get to introduce her to you today. Before we begin, here's a gentle reminder from me to you to vote. For the love of God and for the future of our children and their children, please fucking vote. Early voting has started in many states already. It starts in my state, Tennessee, this week. Do you have a plan for how you and when you will vote? Listen, people are more fired up than ever before. I saw some numbers last week that compared how many people had voted by this time in 2016 versus now. It was way under a million people in 2016 that had voted up until now. And already six, seven million people have voted. We are mad. We are ready to take matters into our own hands. And I hope this means that Americans are ready to vote out this dangerous, toxic, megalomaniacal president that is currently occupying the White House. Please, my friends, vote. Ask your friends, ask your parents, ask your siblings, This is the time to use positive peer pressure to make sure every person that can vote gets out to vote in this massively important election. If you have any questions at all, please reach out. I mean it. I'd love to help you in any way that I can. Okay, let's get right into it, shall we? As always, you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com, and you can text me at 646-328-6414. And without further ado, Here's my conversation with amazing damn giver, Ann Lee. Let's go. Well, 
Well, good morning, Ann Lee. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Good morning, Nick. You are on the West Coast, right? I am. I'm in so this is so this is like f- top of the day for you, right? First thing on your agenda, maybe. It is. It is. It's the <laughs> when I'm the most lucid, so it's a good. Oh, time. I I completely understand that. I love getting up early, getting out, doing all the things that require my best brain power. Um, although. I am not in my best brain power today because of the debate last night. Oh, I had, uh, yeah, that was tough. I don't know. Did you watch it? I tried to, and then I couldn't because I was just getting so upset. And so I had to listen to sort of the replays and the secondhand stuff because just listening to it directly was just so much. I couldn't, I couldn't do that to myself. Yeah. It felt like a lot, right? I, I had to force myself. I mean, I, about an hour before, I was watching it with a friend, and about an hour before, I almost called it off, just because I, I knew it was going to happen. We both knew what was going to happen, yeah. but but then literally, like an hour before, I was like, "Nope, I've got to watch it." You know, yeah. I'm in this work. I'm helping people give a damn. We're doing all these different things. I need to, I need to see the fire. Like, I need to run into the fire, hear yeah. it all, consume it all, and then let it really influence, you know, more of my work, more yeah. of my work, right? Like let's, let's use that. It, but it was so, so hard. If I did not have uh, a buddy there calming me down and um, a couple good drinks and a cigar and some weed, if I didn't have all those things together to yeah. like calm me down, I mean, I just yelled at the, I mean, <laughs> I pointed my finger so many times at the laptop screen and, and you know, just shut up, let him talk. You did yeah. not, you had the chance to disavow white supremacy and to tell everyone that you are not proud of the proud boys and you do not want them on your team. You told them to stand back and stand by. You did not, that is the easiest thing. They threw him the easiest bone and he just threw it away. He failed. And I mean, just that I, I had to, I was listening up to the part of about forest cities. And at that point yeah. I just, like, I need to go for a run. I need to get this toxin out of my system because it just was too much. And yeah. then I had to listen to sort of the secondhand commentary because it was just so direct and so visceral. It's like a gut punch, you know, just couldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> You're brave. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, no, no, no. I totally, I, I had several people say that people that I, you know, admire and respect and they're in the work as well. And I was like, please do like what's best for your health. Mm-hmm. Um, that was tough. And we've got two, you know, we've got two more. I just found out the other day that the third one is, you know, I live in Nashville right now, not for much longer, but uh, the third one's right here in Nashville. Um, I, I thought about trying to figure, I have friends at Belmont where it's being hosted. I was like, man, do I even want to do that? Or am I going to be the guy that like interrupts and, you know, rushes yeah, the stage and goes to jail? <laughs> I will heckle there with you. <laughs> That's amazing. What he's doing the entire time anyway. So yes, it's one big heckle fest for sure. Okay. Let's move on. Let's, I I did want to get your thoughts because I assumed that you would have something to say there. It was a rough night, but let's not spend, we we only have a short amount of time together. I want to use it super wisely. Again, thank you for joining us. As I learned more about you over the last couple of days, just doing a little bit of prep. I try not to, one of my, I'm kind of weird when it comes to podcasting. I've done, you know, 175 of these so far. And I try to do, and, and some people have gotten upset at me. I try to do as little uh, <laughs> homework as possible. Cause I do want, I do want to get a grasp of what's going on. Yeah. But uh, I have a friend who has an amazing podcast, uh, cr- uh, creator lab. If you're into creativity and entrepreneurship, everybody go find it. But he does like so much work. I mean, hours and hours and has notes and notes. And I'm like, I, that, that does not fit well with me. All that to say, as I was doing a little bit of like homework and, you know, Googling your name and seeing what pops up and looking at the bio they sent over, holy shit, like you have done so much, so many incredible things. I'm so honored to be talking to you today. Like, I feel like you're, you know, one of these giants that everybody needs to know about. You know, this is my favorite thing to do. You know, I had originally contacted the team to ask, hey, can Sean come on, talk about what Core is doing? And they said he can't schedule, totally get that. But why don't you have Anna? Like, she, and when I started look out, like I've always been, I bring in, you know, well-known people every five or six episodes and to kind of bring more ears and eyes into, the, you know, into this podcast, and into this work. But I do it, like my heart behind it is to bring, a, shed a light on these people that are, doing such incredible work and not many people are 
looking at what they're doing. I mean, I even a lot of the videos where you and Sean appeared, right? If you just Google, you know, they always said Sean Penn, Sean Penn, Sean Penn, Sean Penn, Sean Penn, right? It's all about Sean and, and you know, he, whatever, it's his vision and he's obviously the well-known person of the, of the bunch, but you're, you're sitting right there leading the work, leading the effort. And so I'm so thrilled to be- that. I love having him out in the front because it just gives so much more space and room for me to get away with things that I probably, or he couldn't get away with. So it's a good, it's a good um, balance that we have. And I do think that, you know, actually going back to just, you know, bringing up the whole, um, you know, the space is just about like, there's so much aura around it, but like humanitarianisms being hero and sometimes, you know, feeling like, really awkward when people are like, thank you so much for what you do in your service. And it's like, oh my God, this is not what you think it is. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like, so, so I do think that a lot of the sheen and, 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 you know, I appreciate sort of the, the, the compliments, but so much of it, I feel like, oh my God, if they only knew <laughs> I I'm just the front for the rest of the team as well. You know, so Sean and I are kind of just paving the way for all these incredible communities and people who are affected to do the work that they do. And we get yeah. to take it. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So kind of how I want things to go is I want us to end up uh, with talking about your work with CORE and especially, and you know, most importantly, what y'all are doing right now with this COVID-19 pandemic, because it's super incredible. But let's go back first. I always love to get, um, let's build some framework for this conversation. The, you know, the who, what, when, where, and why of, you know, and all throughout the years, right? So who are the people that kind of built you and shaped you? Because I always love to, yeah, I always love to find different like clues for how you ended up the way you did. A lot of times it's because of good role models. A lot of times it's because of bad role models, right? Like no path is linear. No journey is, you know, no journey is the same. So let, go back as far as you want to or are comfortable with and just kind of give us the, 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 the journey. And I'll interrupt from time to time, but give us the journey from, you know, again, as far back as you want to, to your work now with, with uh, core. So I guess, I guess what it's, 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 you're right. It's not a straight trajectory. And I feel like, okay, there's a part of me that is very Korean and, you know, we draw on this, like, you know, centuries of colonialization and, and, you know, it's thing called, it's this thing called Han, right? Every Korean knows about it. It's like this, like, frustration and rage and like sense of mm. injustice um that we all that you know all Koreans know about that I think kind of just is inside of inside of us there's that that I think I tap into a lot and then on the positive side I think there is this um you know sense of civic responsibility that my mom instilled in us when we were young you know she came over here as an immigrant as my father did and they worked so hard and they got so much help from people a lot from you know the church community um you know there's always these saving circles that every sort of immigrant community knows or you know a lot of people do um when the banking system kind of excludes them is that they save amongst each other so you know there's three of us or five of us when you know this year i'm gonna or this month i'm putting in ten thousand dollars you guys all put it in but i get the whole pot i use that to invest in my business it's a free loan next month you get it the month after that the next the, the next person gets the whole pot and it's this type of like sort of you need to rely on each other and there's an informal system that you're relying on that actually works and helps you get into a formalized system. Hmm. And I think, you know, experiencing all of that and, and, you know, having strangers come through the house all the time when they needed a place to stay, um, we were always instilled with the sense of <clears throat> if we have more, it's our responsibility to help others who don't. That's just, that's just normal. And that's how we take care of ourselves because investing in other people, it'll come, it'll come back to us eventually. So I think it's those two things that always kind of drove me into the space of service. One is this rage <laughs> and this sense of anger around injustice, which is what I feel yeah. um, a lot. Um, and then on the other side is this like positivity, this positive force of, you know, we should do something if you can do something. Um, and, you know, I think that both of them fuel each other. 
Like, yeah, you-, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about James Baldwin lately. I interviewed Eddie Glaude Jr., Princeton professor, who wrote this amazing book on James, you know, called Begin Again. And out of out of anyone that I've studied in the, you know, sort of black culture that was leading as a, you know, as a, as a black man during super wild times, I felt like James, again, out of anyone, held despair and hope the best. Right. Mm-hmm. There's that tension of, yeah. And I've had I, that's the advice I've been giving myself every single day, every hour of every day. But a lot of people come to me because of the work that I do. And like, how, how do we do this? Like, how in the hell do we make it through another day of this? And I think the only way to do it is to, like, we can't ignore it. I have some people in my um, sphere of influence that are super like overly positive. I I think they're overly positive, right? They don't talk about the hard things. They don't face the realities. It's all, you know, it's all hope. It's all hope. And that's, that's good. Part of that is good. Like hope is we need hope or else fuck it. Let's just end. Like, why are we even living another day? Right? So I get that. Like, let's have hope. But when you don't feel the despair, when you don't deploy empathy and feel what, you know, I am, uh, I'm the son of an uh, undocumented immigrant. So I have certain things that I have to wrestle with, but I'm not wrestling through what, you know, black Americans are going through right now or what women have gone through for millennia, right? Like I'm not, I I don't pretend to do that. And so for me to act like those things are not happening right now um, is to not, yeah, I need to deploy empathy. I need to be, I need to feel a little bit of what they're feeling yeah. So that I can fuel my hope, so that I can, you know, uh, uh, channel that into into action later on. Because if you're just positive all the time, like that, right. that gets boring. A yeah, no. and B, yeah. that's not realistic. It's not realistic. Yeah. No, I think that's so right on, and I haven't ever been able to articulate like these two sides until now because you know people sometimes just want to hear like oh you know your mother it's so and that is so true it is part of it but there is a fundamental sense of rage that i have that if i didn't have that there's no way i would have gotten 7 years through haiti through the worst mm. time. there's no way i could get through this period right now if i didn't have rage so i try to use it in a positive way at least yeah <laughs> no and I, again, looking at your bio and some of the things you've done, it seems like you've been able to consistently, um, whether you had language or not for it, like you were able to consistently use the rage and the despair to fuel action, which I think is, which I th- again, I think is so incredibly important. Going back to Baldwin for a second, like he, you know, he at one point said, I have to leave America, right? You know, he left you know, I, and I've been thinking a lot about that. Like, do I, do many of us need to, and it sounds like you've had a lot of international experience. I, you know, grew up in Guatemala. I spent six years traveling over all over the world. Like I have enough overseas experience that I know what he was talking about where, when he said, I, well, I know some, I don't want to, but he said, I, I, I either have to, like, I'm, if I stay, I'm going to be killed or kill someone. That's what he said. Like, I've got to go. I've got to go. And then when he was out, he was able to begin writing like so well, so succinctly, so clearly he had to get out of it. Right. And so I think probably maybe you would say, uh, and tell me if this is true, like you doing a lot of this work that doesn't just involve the United States, right? Like getting out, meeting people, seeing different kinds of people and how, I mean, the Haitian people talk about a hopeful people talk about a people that are, you know, literally we're hanging on for dear life for so many years and now still are in so many ways. And I know so many people that live and work there and they're encouraged every single day by them, right? Like they're being given hope by the Haitian people, right? And so, yeah, is that true for your life in terms of has your international experience helped you see the United States and you're the child of immigrants, right? So we're, you and I are able to see the world in a much, see the world being the United States world in a much different way than so many people here that have never never left. For sure. I think that you pick up on things so much better. I, you know, just kind of seeing these nuances, there's all this unspoken language that as an immigrant, you kind of learn to kind of like look around the room, things that you just take for granted when you are sort of 
at the top of the food chain that you miss out. Yeah. And then when you're not, you kind of recognize that not just, you know, wherever you are, but also, also outside of the country and kind of realizing, oh, okay, in these cases, it might not be immigrants, but it's also social groups, right? The, the, the out groups, the in groups and all those things. It's just, it gives you a, a ton of sensitivity to these things that I feel like, you know, if I didn't grow up the way that I did, there's no way I would have picked up on that. Yeah. Let's spend a few more minutes on you. Okay. So keep telling a story, but talk about some of the, the work, the, the roles you filled, some of the work that you've done. Um, you know, I know some, sometimes it feels weird to kind of like talk yourself up, but talk yourself up because I think, again, I, I, what I'm trying to do with this podcast and platform is introduce let's give a damn family members to people that have wrestled through so many different things and have taken on a bunch of different roles and have done a bunch of different kinds of work to continue. And all the while you and are figuring out who you are and how you best work and the, the, the best ways that you can lead and, and the ways that you shouldn't be leading. Right. And so you defer to other people and you bring on other, other team members. And so keep giving us your, your bio. You started by giving, and I love that you started with like family and yeah. you know, your mom and church community and even some of your like cultural background, like Korean things that were helping your family, right? Get into some of the, the, the work, some of the roles you've uh, led in. Sure. So, you know, I, I graduated with uh, a degree in cultural anthropology. I was convinced I was going to go out in the world and, you know, study cultures and stuff, which in an essence I did. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of our work, it's so critically important to kind of learn the way that people think, understand, understand pe people's motivations. Um, but when I left college, I um, started working for this incredible woman who started up her own firm, her own law firm, an entertainment law firm. And I was just there sort of just, you know, making ends meet. But I just learned so much from her about leadership and just being a woman boss, you know. And, and um, from there, during that time, I was living on Second Avenue and our offices were in Soho. And one morning, you know, I heard all these sirens just going down the street, going down my avenue. So I hopped up on my, my rooftop. And it was then that I saw the second plane um, hit the second tower. Oh, wow. The World Trade Center. And it just was, that I think was a huge turning point for me, where I just, you know, despite the fact that I was learning so much and she wanted to send me to law school so that I could come back as a partner and just, you know, we're very close still, you know, I just made me think sort of what, what am I doing right now with my life and why did this happen and what can I do to actually prevent something like this from happening? I quit my job. I decided I'm going back to school for, you know, international relations. I, I ended up going back to school for conflict management because I truly thought that I was going to be in those rooms to negotiate and, you know, kind of, you know, work in, in wars and conflict situations because it just had such a lifelong impact on me. Um, but while I was doing that, um, I ended up also working for the UN um, between my two years at school in Kosovo, working with the refugee community that was pushed out of Kosovo into Serbia. It was the Roma who are just, you know, the most disenfranchised mm. people in Europe, um, one of them. And, you know, just working in that space with, um, with the refugees, it was, it was not easy. I mean, it just, you know, I just thought it was like, oh, we're going to do good and everyone's going to be happy because we're doing good. And it was like most of the time fighting with the Roma to try to get them to move to, you know, a nice building because it was so not part of their culture to be in like a static, you know, apartment complex. They were, they, they were very nomadic and wanted to move around and have open spaces. So that's why I learned like what we're trying to do just makes no sense and it's not fair to them. Um, but it is where I got hooked into sort of, Oh God, this is what I want to do. Mm. And then from there left conflict management and went straight to nonprofit work. And have you, have you had any roles outside of nonprofit work since, or has it all been, all in, been in the same space? All in the same space. So I went from working for a large NGO to then, um, 
let's see, I ended up in Haiti for six years, then worked for the UN and uh, with the Women's Refugee Commission, which was an incredible place. I hated the UN. Um, it's how I feel about uh, religion. It's like, I believe in God, but not necessarily the church. Mm. So I believe in the idea behind the UN and what it could do, but not necessarily this institution that we have. Um, so and, and that's, that's, that's so much of life, right? Like, let's pause yeah. there for a second. I too, um, I believe in God. I am part of a church very reluctantly. Um, three or four years ago, came to a crossroads where I was like, I'm, I'm either going to like say fuck it all and leave it like all together, or I'm going to do the hard work to figure out the hard work of examining myself, examining my world and my community and my family, figuring out if there is a community out there that sort of honors all of that, that, you know, a, a, a community where there aren't, I don't want to stereotype, but aren't, you know, uh, abusive, power-hungry men leading everything, yeah. right? Which is yeah. the UN. It's a lot of religion. It's a lot, right? It's a lot of these institutions. It's our government, right? Yeah. I mean, we got eight years of reprieve with, uh, you know, Barack Obama, but like, it's just, it, it went back to the same old, same old, right? In 2016. And what's that? It flipped way in the other direction. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. Yeah. What happened in the last four years is unlike anything that's happened before, for sure. And we could spend hours on that and let's not for our health. But I, I, I think, um, yeah, like tell me about, so so you hated the UN. And again, I I, I hear that. I feel that. Yeah. And how, how did you, how did you still, how did you figure out which organization to then go like which organization, which organizations, which leaders to kind of attach yourself to? Because I'll be, I'll be honest with some of my story. My first career was in nonprofit, 14 years, and I left it um, very disillusioned, like very sick and tired of begging, borrowing, and stealing for everything that we wanted or needed. And again, that's not all nonprofit work. I, I left it while I still didn't hate it, right? Like I left it at a time when I said, I need to get out but I see the value in the work and let me go explore the world, find out how people are giving a damn, why they're giving a damn in the for-profit sector, the nonprofit sector and otherwise. And over the years, uh, at a time where I, if I would have stayed one more year in it, I probably would uh, not want anything to do with that sector because I had some fairly unhelpful experiences. Mm -hmm. um, but I left at a time where I could still feel it Mm -hmm. and then go talk to people like yourself and hear those experiences, you know, and, and then, you know, continue to grow my heart back. You know, my, yeah. my, my yeah. Grinch heart grows back a size or two every, every once in a while when, yeah, when I hear someone like yourself that, you know, already I admire you so much and, and you left probably a, you know, maybe a much more lucrative, you know, yeah. career path <laughs> to say, no, I, this is who I am. I need to be in this space, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I come on board to the UN. I mean, I love my coworkers and they are phenomenal, but the UN as a structure was terrible. The whole, um, the, the work that I was doing was trying to reform the system. Hmm. It was created to reform humanitarian assistance. Because at that point, I was quite frustrated after seeing what had happened um, in Haiti. You know, there was a lot of good work done, but there was also a lot of waste and a lot of terrible work done. And um, I was really fired up about reforming the system. You know, we created this, this humanitarian assistance um, complex that has been in place for about 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. And it was created in the disasters that was created back in those days, which is like, you know, mostly rural, you know, related to famine. And so all of these things that we've created don't fit within these complex, like, you know, urban settings with, you know, multi-layered issues uh, that we're all trying to address now. And so in, in trying to, to, to figure out how to make this better, you know, I realized that, you know, trying to do it within this really heavy system wasn't the right way to do it. And it was then that, you know, Sean came to me to see if I would jump ship and, and, and join his crew. And I had met him in Haiti in 2010. Um, he, he tells a story about, he calls me the Korean ice princess because that's amazing. <laughs> Cause 
I remember this. Um, he had been running a displacement camp of, you know, tens of thousands of people um, living in plastic sheeting and sticks and, and tents. And he had asked a number of us larger organizations who've been there, had been there for four years by that time, to come and see what we can do to help. And I just was like, I was not having it. I came in there and I just was like, okay, what time? Five minutes and I'm out of here. Because he was like the fifth celebrity who had come in to just, you know, take their photos, you know, hold babies and then leave. Um, so I was pretty rude. And he called me the Korean ice princess, always referred to me as that. But it was after, you know, seeing him month after month, he wasn't leaving. He was living on the camp. He was really, really getting shit done that I was like, okay, this guy's legit, mm. you know, sat down with him. And he just was spewing out all these crazy ideas about like how we should be doing things and why are we doing it like this? And it was just, at first I was really defensive. Like, what do you know? You know, you don't know anything like fuck you. But after a while I was like, wait a second, like mm. if we don't sit and listen to other, these like very uncomfortable outsider positions, then there's no chance for us to learn. So, you know, we sat down and kind of like really talked things out and, you know, I got his perspective and I was like, you know what, what you're saying is so genius. Let's fucking try it. Let's yeah. just do it. Yeah. And we just as you know, after that point, we we're thick as thieves every night, sitting down, scheming, trying to like pull in this person to do what we wanted them to do. And really it was just so out of the ordinary and, um, you know, and, and, and it actually worked. I mean, it's so hard to explain through this, you know, these different media, like I invite you to come down to Haiti next time you want, you, you know, yeah, free time. I'm going next month, come with me. And you'll see sort of just the transformation that was made when we had like five stories of rubble, you know, clearing it out and not just, you know, getting people back to live in their homes as they did, but fundamentally transform a neighborhood of 100,000 people with lighting, drainage, footpaths, housing with solar panels and green space and places where kids could play. I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't, it was inconceivable at the time. Um, but not only did he do it and we do it, it replicated in like six other communities because other organizations and other groups were like, yeah, this is the way that we've got to do it. And now it's like, you know, 600,000 people that we're, we're impacting. So it's that type of thing that like, that was the moment that was also like sort of my second watershed moment after the earthquake where I was like, there is no way I'm going back to the old school humanitarian system. Um, so when I try to do that through the UN and it just realized, you know, the politics was just too, too much to actually get anything done. Um, you know, Sean came to me right at the moment where I was just like, you know, fuck this place. It's just, it's not possible. And he said, you know, come on board. And, you know, from there, it's just been go, go, go. I mean, what we've been doing is, like I've never had this type of freedom before, you know, where we sit down and, and I always tell, you know, more than just being like a fundraising puppet, which is what he feels like a lot of times, but he really has this incredible brain to be like, I have no barriers. He has no sort of sense of like, you know, oh, I don't think that's possible. There's, that's not in his lexicon. And to have somebody like that, that you can kind of like hang on to, that's like, I have this crazy idea and I'm like, let's do it. And I can make it happen. It's just the perfect blend of personalities. And, you know, going back to sort of those dualities that, that drive me, he so has that, that, you know, my raged, enraged person speaks to his enraged person all the time, you know, and he so has that sense of sort of, you know, anger and fire from injustices that he sees and I think it is because of those similarities that we have that we kind of complement each other so well. No, that's super beautiful. You know, we see, we see so many people get influence, get power, get fame. And there's just so, because of social media and otherwise, they are, it's so easy to see people throw that away and take advantage of it, right? Or, or take it for granted, right? We see, I mean, we just have to go onto YouTube and find these, you know, young 
you know, white YouTuber boys that are just like, you know, living in these huge mansions and like blowing it on, you know, cars and girls and this and that. And you're, it, it makes you feel really shitty about the future. Right. But because, because when, you know, we're all just stewards of what God gives us, what the universe gives us, right? What, you know, if, if you're given a little steward, that little, if you're given a lot, steward that lot. Right. And it's so refreshing. I've been able to do this through, you know, the podcast and other work that I've done within my company, Let's Give a Damn. And it's been so refreshing to every once in a while, yeah. meet that person that was given a lot mm-hmm. and they're using every fucking ounce of that a lot to mm-hmm. do good in the world, right? Like you telling that story is, you know, about Sean and about how you both met and, and him showing up day after day and he wasn't just there for the photo op. That will, I think that encourages me, that in, will encourage so many people because we see so many examples of that not happening. We see that, we see that from the very top right now, our, you know, celebrity president who has been given so much. I mean, he literally started his professional life out with millions of dollars to play with. And he is just year after day after day, month after month, year after year, continue to make himself a worse person than he was the day before, right? And you don't see any of that give back. You don't see any of that. How can we uh, tackle problems? How can we fix things? Um, It's just more of the same day in and day out. And so I'm, I'm, I mean, I assume that was the case because I've been following, like many people, Sean's sort of philanthropic humanitarian work over the years. It seems like he's consistently there doing the shit that matters. But from, you know, we, we given an inside picture into that. Um, that's amazing to hear that. That's actually how Sean is. He's, he's sleeping in the, in the camps. He's there um, doing the work. That's important. Even, even in this COVID period, you know, when we jumped into the space of testing, you know, he was there next to me every single day, every single day. And still is on, you know, every single day, like, constantly updating and we're talking, we're trying to figure out sort of where the landscape is. There's all this like stuff that's happening and, you know, um, he's very much involved and, and I wouldn't want to have any other sort of mental, um, uh, spar than him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. Let's shift now into talking about core, your current role as the CEO and co-founder of core. Uh, many people, may have heard about it because knowing about Sean and his work, but give us the lay of the land. Um, and I want to, I want to move toward us spending a few minutes talking about this pandemic and what you all are doing in response. But first, just give us a broader view of the organization, what y'all do, what y'all have done and the impact. So we're a nonprofit organization. We are in this really sweet spot where um, we're small enough where we can get away with a lot of things but um, we have enough backing to, to have significant impact. So, you know, again, trying to do things differently than the traditional ways of responding, we kind of occupy this, you know, humanitarian response phase as well as the development phase. Usually those two are very separated out. Like if you're humanitarian, you're a specific type. You're like the cowboy. You like go in and you're like pew, pew, pew. And then the development people are the ones that are like, you know, really geeky and nerdy. I mean, there's definitely types. Um, We like to think that we're kind of in between. So we try to get things down on the ground quickly to respond to people's immediate needs. But what we keep seeing over and over again, a lot of times, if you just dump and run, you're not actually helping people in the long run. And you're not, and sometimes you could be doing more harm than good. Because if you're competing with local providers and you're dumping in a bunch of free water, even health care, you know, we saw in Haiti, a lot of hospitals, private hospitals went out of business because so many people were providing free health care. There was, and then now, and then you just created like the system of just relying on free health care into perpetuity. Um, So again, it's like working against sort of these long-term goals that you want to set down in a community. Um, so for us, we go down and we don't have a specific thing to do, which makes it really hard for fundraising for us (laughs) because it's way easier if you're like, oh, we are house builders and look at this beautiful house that we built and wonderful photos. Um, the thing is, is that we feel that the community knows better than us about what they need and what they want. So it's our job to go down and listen, um, and to learn and then to act. And so for us, 
we can do anything in between, you know, yes, we're great at rubble removal and, you know, shelter and tarping and roofing and muckouts and all kinds of stuff. It's not rocket science, but, you know, the things that we know that we can't do ourselves, like if people need food immediately, we bring in our awesome partners, World Central Kitchen for health stuff. We bring in direct relief. Like we know that we can't do it all, but we're, you know, standing around with these incredible organizations that have been supporting us. We jointly respond, we provide immediate care, but also then look at what do these community needs? I mean, basically it's not, it's never a mystery in terms of where you should be before a hurricane or something hits. It's always the poor black and brown communities that always get the hardest hit, the least amount of money to get out of that situation and are constantly vulnerable. You know, they're just in this poverty cycle constantly. And so when we see a trajectory of some sort of disaster coming our way in the United States, we know exactly what cities to sit in, where to go, you know, and that's, that's what we, what, what frustrates us, right? Um, that we know this, we know that, you know, after every disaster, FEMA gives the least amount of money to the poorest of the poor, because, you know, they're, they're giving it to, to safe, you know, the least risky families, which are usually middle income who have other means, other resources. So it's these things that we keep saying over and over again. So we want to invest in sort of not just preparedness for these things beforehand, get them through the disaster, and then stay around to invest in strengthening those communities. Um, It's not easy because a lot of people aren't into, you know, supporting preparedness stuff or the after stuff when those things are the things that actually make the impact. Hell yeah. The, the during the crisis part, that's the sexiest, right? So how do we make those preparedness pieces and the more invest longer term investment sexy? We haven't cracked that code yet, but you know, those are the two pieces that we feel so strongly about. Well, I don't know. And if you're ever going to be able to make it sexy, you're not, you're not asking for my opinion, but I think I, I am, you know, I'm, I'm right. I'm, I'm thinking about so many things right now because I love talking to you and I'm writing a book and we're, I'm working on a TV show and we're starting a nonprofit. And like, I'm trying to figure out how to do all of these things strategically. Right. Just because I want to ask a question about how, the way that you're doing it. You have to know that it's like unlike 97% of the nonprofits out there, the way that y'all are strategically thinking, but I don't know that you're ever going to be able to, I, I just don't, cause it's not sexy. Yeah. People just need to, they, they need to, people need to grow up yeah. and learn to do hard shit right? Like don't do something for right now during this pandemic. I mean, people are, there's so many TikTok people that have gotten famous for doing all these like big tip handouts. Right. And that is so, I mean, that is just like, uh, tear porn. I mean, that's like, it gets, it gets like, you you are, you are on, you are taking all the dignity that this server has away from them by plastering their face all over social media. Cause you want to give them a $300 tip. Like, yeah. honestly, fuck you exactly. for, for, for doing, I mean, it's just so, it's so frustrating, right? That's sexy though. That's what people want. They want that. Like there's one girl here in Nashville. It has to be Nashville, but like she, she built this humongous platform over this pandemic. Cause she gives a thousand dollars up to three people every weekend. That's how it started. So throughout the week, she would raise $3,000 from her following and now, like she gave, there was this one kid. It's funny because I saw her TikTok video an hour after I gave money to this kid. He's at my local Target right down the road. And his sign said, uh, we're about to be evicted. We need money for rent. He's playing a violin. It sounded awesome. I saw, I never have cash on me. And I had some cash, gave him all the cash, said, dude, like, God bless. Hope you can pay rent. Like, keep going. And then an hour later, I see her video pop up, Right. And she gives him a thousand dollars and the kids like speechless, whatever it's all over TikTok. And that next week, that one like hit people, it hit a nerve. And that next week she raised like $60,000 and it's gone up every week. Like now she gets like a hundred thousand dollars a week to give away. It's so, so frustrating yeah. that she's now this like famous TikToker. <sighs> like I'm not saying I'm better than her. I am. God knows I'm, I have my, my shit to deal with, but like, there was no part of me that said, Hey, let me take a selfie with this dude. Like, Hey, come, you know, look at what I just did for this guy. That's raised like that. Like, Oh, it's so frustrating. So let's move on from that. But all, I just wanted to point out, 
I don't know yeah. that you and Sean and your team are ever going to be able to make that sexy. I think it's just about people like manning and womaning the fuck up <laughs> and just doing the hard things. Yeah, but right? there's it, that's the hard work, right? It's it, yes. how do you educate people to see the difference between those two? One is like immediate gratification, the sugar rush of like, I did yep. good and look at me versus like, holy shit, like this is something that's going to last, you know, and yeah, and it's harder and it feels shitty sometimes. Like yep. it's not all like hearts and stars where people are like, thank you so much. Sometimes it's like, fuck you. Yeah. What are you doing in my neighborhood? Fuck you. We don't need you. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel good all the time. A lot of times it's painful. It is hard, you know, like working in Haiti, I got yelled at every single day with the community. We would fight, fight, fight at the end of the day, shake hands, be like, okay, we'll see you tomorrow. But you know, it was never, you know, the hearts and love and you know, it doesn't feel good, but that's, you know, that's not what it's about. Right. It's not about, no. does this make me feel good? Um, no. that's, it's difficult in this climate right now where it is so much about, does this make me feel good right now? Um, so it's not, it's yeah, it's hard. And we're working, we're working with a uh, country that has been built on this, yeah. right? Like, so people here find it so hard and, and not that again, America's not the, I think it's the worst most of the time, but there are other countries where you'll find people, you know, that would act the same way. But America's is unique. Yeah. We've built this country on the backs of black and brown people. We've built this country, uh, you know, so that most people, not everybody, thank God, but most people believe that crony capitalism is the way to go. Right. They saw Donald, Donald Trump's tax records the other day, and they said, good for him for gaming the system. That is how far gone we are, right? And so there's so much about like me, me, me. Does this make me feel good? How can I build my thing? And if I find it within my good heart to give back, then I'll do it, right? It's this weird, twisted, messed up, not proven way of living, right? Like nobody, no, no one that's studied the history of humans would look at what we're currently doing and saying, that's the right path. Like you're, you're, you're headed towards success, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so- yeah, that is the hard thing. It is so hard to get people convinced that hard stuff is good for you. Like it's going to build discipline. The Stoics got it. And many other peoples, like entire civilizations throughout history, got it. We we don't have it. We don't got it. And like so much of this discussion right now, I feel like, you know, in when, when you work in so many places where you have 1% of the population controlling 99%, you know, it's, and you see it, like in Haiti, like in the Congo. And, you know, there's things that I see that happen there politically that I see echoes of here. You know, the things that I saw after the disaster in Haiti that I'm seeing right now during this pandemic, you know, and it's just, you know, it just goes to show sort of, you know, we're not, we're not on any high horse to be able to be telling anybody what to do. Um, but I also do think that fundamentally it's a cultural thing that we've lost here in the U.S. And I feel really like an old person when I, when I hear myself talk like this. But where are the values? You know, back in the day, it was like, you know, church, military, school that socialized all of us into this idea of what we are as like Americans, right? And now we're getting the socialization through like TikTok and all these other different voices. And I mean, it's just it's too much it's too much and we're becoming atomized so we're no longer a country of americans we're just you know we're you know los angeleans we're you know the, and not even that we're like this one community within that group you know and and that sense of sort of what makes us american has kind of gone out the window and it's really depressing it's scary um but again it also fuels me to be like oh hey We've got to go and, you know, work in all these neighborhoods and basically just start from, let's just do door-to-door -door hand knocking and community organization shit, because that's what we need to get back down to. Let's get back down to the roots of like what made this country awesome. Right. And yes, where did the, where did the strategic thinking, let's spend a couple minutes here and then we'll wrap up talking about uh, CORE's, you know, COVID-19 response. But I, I'm really impressed with how you're describing this small but mighty team that you and Sean have built, right? In the in the the focus on the preparedness in the aftermath, not so, you know, and obviously the being there when shit hits the fan, but focusing more on these like two ends because that's where it's more important. That is not um, that is not a staple of nonprofit work. Yeah. Uh, most of them 
because they're trying to get dollars, right? All of them are trying to make some money at the end of the day so they can do their thing are focused on what gets, you know, what gets on the news, what gets, you know, what can we take photos of all of that stuff? Where did that strategic thinking come from? Is that, was that you? Was that Sean? Was that both of you? Where, where's the heart behind, Hey, we're going to do the thing that probably isn't going to make us as much money, but it's the right thing to do. Where did that come from? I think it is just our, our, the alchemy of our personalities that came together, right? Cause Sean obviously as everyone knows, doesn't really care about what people think about him. Yeah. <laughs> He's quite polarizing um, sometimes, but you know, we love that. And it was always about, and also, you know, my COO, Jerome, he's always, you know, he's just like one of these guys that you want to kick sometimes because they're so good, where he's like, always ask that question at the end of like a long conversation is like, but is it the right thing to do? And I'm like, mm. you, you know, but you, you know, I have these like strong anchors of moral compass in the organization. That's like, you know, None of us are have ever chased the dollars or motivated by money. You know, we've taken pay cuts at times when times are rough. And, you know, all of us have just been doing this because we love it. We cannot not do this, right? So um, I think, you know, it's it's just part of our, our alchemy of different personalities that have made this organization. But I also do think that, you know, we realize that it's a successful model. It's not just because it's the right thing to do. It's actually working, right? So yes. we don't try to do like these big blowout projects because we don't have that type of money, but we know what we can do, which is we can go into a place and, you know, a lot of times what we get in these contexts with really well-established bigger organizations is that they start getting paralysis of analysis. We have all these lawyers and it's about, okay, well, what about the liability on, you know, in this informal settlement about moving that piece of wood? We're going to need to get like 10 signatures and all this stuff. And it's sort of like, guys, this is no, this is not the time, right? Like we'll, 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 we'll do first and ask for forgiveness later, right? Within reason, right? We're, we're taking calculated risks. Yep. And I think the space that we occupy is that we're able to jump in and, and show that you can do this very complicated, maybe not like the traditional way of doing it, that's riskier, but we just lowered the risk level because we were the first ones to do it. We'll do it on a small scale. And then once we show that it works, we tweak it. That's when we get the larger money or the other organizations that can do it on a bigger scale. That's what happened in Haiti when they did that one neighborhood of a hundred thousand people and you know, saw it replicate. And that's sort of the spark. That's what we learned from. So what we want to do is kind of do the proof of concept, show this is how you do it. Let's lower the barriers, get other people to come in, replicate it. It doesn't always have to be us. We don't have that type of money anyway. Um, And that's exactly what we tried to do when we jumped into this COVID space. Like, you know, the, the closest thing I, I got to knowing sort of anything about testing was being Korean and watching like what they were doing in Korea. I was like, I'm going to do that. You know, and Sean and I had been talking every single day, like what, you know, we've got to do something. We can't sit on the sidelines. This is just insane. And, you know, we just started asking questions. We just were like, you know what, fuck it. There's this one guy who's doing, you know, a testing site, testing 50 people from the back of his truck. Love it. You know, so let's find out how he's doing it. Sat down with him, learned everything and said, came to the mayor's office. (laughs) So full of shit, like, hey, so we got this, right? Um, Just give us a space and we'll take care of it. And they're like, "Mm, why don't you just work with us? (laughs) Because we didn't know really all the different component pieces to it. But, you know, you need to kind of, you know, go in there with a lot of confidence. And luckily, you know, they, they trusted us. We got fed into the fire department who, man, they are just, they're a dream. They've got our backs every single day. They're there on site with us every single day. And in Los Angeles with Eric Garcetti's office, we created this one tiny team of like 10 people, maybe testing maximum 250 people a day with the fire department. And now it's like 12,000 people a day. And that model helped us replicate into, you know, six other cities where we're in right now. So we're doing about like 15 to 17,000 tests per day across the U.S. Um, And for us, you know, again, it wasn't ever a question about, you know, should we? It was like, what are we going to do? 
No, that's that's incredible. So what you're saying is, unlike our president and this administration, CORE has a plan. Um, and here's what I love. I, I, I man, I'm, I'm feeling so much like kindredship with you and Sean and the way that because that's exactly how I am. And it's gotten me in trouble before. But I am so much the ready, fire, aim guy. And I'm okay yeah. with that. Like, sure, I don't want to do things that are going to harm people that I love. I don't want to do things that are going to like demolish my livelihood. But I have seen, right. by and large, just like go out there and do it. You don't have to know all the ins and outs. You don't have to know how to do it. And that is, when I look at all the damn givers that I want to be like, when I look at all the people out there that have, yes, yeah, some were not risk takers and they did it super, super well. But I think when you take, when you stop being a risk taker, you end up like the UN. You end up like yes. the, the Bill and Melinda exactly. Gates Foundation. You end up like these places that have become so yeah. bureaucratic and so 50 signatures to buy a cup of coffee. You, When you end up like that, I think that is, that's the antithesis of what you're talking about, where it's just nimble. It's, we, right. we don't know what we're doing. We're going to go into the mayor's office and say, let us have this, right? That kind of boldness is what it's going to take to get shit done. Yeah, and that's, again, the fact that, Garcetti rolled the dice with us. That's what he did. That's that's leadership, right? It's like, yes. well, you know, no one else is doing anything. I'm going to jump right in and just try something out because, you know, at least as long as, as you said, as, as long as you're being like smart about it, right? You're not harming anybody, but you're willing to fail and take those risks. Then that's like the opening to do so much, you know? And so for us, it's, that's, you know, we, the, the Gates Foundation, all those folks, even the UN, they have a place, right? Yes. They have a place, they are needed and they have their thing. But what we do is also super critical to have because they're the ones that are going to basically take what we did and be able to take that to scale to like a thousand different locations that we would never be able to do. So let them do that after we've done a year of sort of pilot yes. testing and fixing out all the bugs and stuff. But we're happy with that. You know, that's, that's in our DNA. I love that. So give us some, as we wrap up here, give, give us some numbers, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic, specifically with your COVID-19 response, like yeah. how many testing sites, how many tests, what have y'all done? We have 34 testing sites across the U.S. We're in the Navajo Nation as well. We're doing not testing there, but wraparound services, providing food support with World Central Kitchen, hygiene kits, and shelter. It's all with President Nez, his awesome, incredible team. Like what they've done to limit the, the spread there is phenomenal. I mean, talk about leadership. It's all in Navajo Nation. Amazing. You know, um, you know people, people talk about it like, oh, poor Navajo who are like, you know, highest COVID percentage rates. But it's like, actually, they're kicking ass. They're <laughs> decreasing the numbers. What are we doing here? Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, and we've tested almost 1.7 million people to date in the last um, five months. Um, more than that, in Atlanta, we've partnered with Republicans and Democrats and the county to work together, who have been just incredible, amazing partners to basically do not just the testing piece, but in the communities that have a lot of mistrust in the government undocumented areas, areas that have a high level of refugee resettlements, we're going in there and doing contact tracing door to door, like knocking on people's door, um, hiring locally so people are speaking the language and, you know, are from that community to actually try to, you know, limit the spread. And then also working with nonprofit organizations to provide those families who need to quarantine to be able to do so safely. So it's like a whole stream of activities. And we, you know, we've been doing this testing thing for quite some time and we realize like testing by itself is, is not going to work. You know, it's, it's, it's just one piece of this very complex puzzle. Um, I mean, you know, again, this is Sean um, pushing us into uncomfortable places. He was, you know, we kind of articulated this together of like shit, you know, we've been testing for a while, but you know, how is that actually impacting things? Is this an excuse for people just to be irresponsible and go out all the time? Are we actually doing more harm than good? Like we're constantly very self-reflective as an organization, right? Like, yeah, we can be like, yeah, we're doing such a great job, almost 2 million tests, but it's sort of like, but is it really making a difference? And if not, then what are we doing to change it? 
Um, and when it does put, push us in uncomfortable spaces, it's usually Sean shoving us out that door, you know, <laughs> like um, telling, you know, we had a close in, in New York. New York is like, you know, he, you know, he did this whole thing with Governor Cuomo and their besties. And, you know, the fact that we closed down our operations there because it just wasn't working. And, you know, the test results were coming in like 10 days afterwards, you know, was not, uh, again, and not an easy or a sexy decision to make, but, you know, it was the right one to do. Um, so, you know, that's where we are. And I went off on a tangent, but yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> Super beautiful work. I mean, I'm so, so proud of y'all. If people want to uh, give you money, partner with you all, go to one of your testing sites. Like where, where do you want to point them to right here at the end of our chat? Just go to coreresponse.org and you can find all the information there to donate, to find out where all of our sites are in, in, in the cities that we're in. And we'll have all those links in the show notes. And Lee, this has been amazing. I could talk with you for hours. You. We have so much more to chat, maybe some other time, but uh, super proud of you all. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Um, this was truly a gift. Thank you. And really, truly come and visit Haiti with us. I will. I will. I have I have a million reasons to go. Now I have a million and one. We'll talk. I have more Haiti stuff. We'll talk about that later. But um, I will definitely join you. Very good. All right. Thank you. That's the show today, my friends. A massive thanks to Ann Lee for joining me, for joining us today on the show. We have so much to learn from her. Visit letsgiveadam.fm for resources and links for everything that was mentioned in the show today. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for showing up week after week after week and for showing your support for this show in many different ways. This episode was edited and produced by Chad Snavely and the team at Sound On Sound Off Studios. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family. You can reach out anytime at hello at letsgiveadam.com or text me 646-328-6414. Friends, sending love and peace to each one of you. Stay safe, keep giving a damn, and until next time, Peace.